Um, there's a story that's been circulating in the internet. I think it happened in 2014, but it kind of like um, had a resurgence. And it's about this woman who's traveling in Iceland and she's part of an organized tour on a bus, stopped at some scenic um, place and uh, she disembarks from the bus and she goes and, you know, uh, has some refreshments and then changes her clothes and comes back to the bus and um, she's not recognized after this change of clothes. So the bus driver reports were missing a person. The articles I read just had a description of, you know, an Asian woman, a very vague descri description. Um, so they start looking for this Asian woman and the, the Asian woman did not recognize this as a description of herself, probably some language uh, issue. So she joined the search party <laughs> and uh, they were uh, searching, you know, quite dire, like searching deep into the night and dogs were called in and they were getting ready to call in helicopters from the morning and it's like a big deal. And, uh, three, four o'clock in the morning, the woman realized, oh, they're looking for me. <laughs> and the, the headline, I really liked the headline of the article. It said, missing woman finds herself in Iceland after joining <laughs> her own search party. Because <laughs> there's this kind of way that what I like about the story is there's the kind of way, and it's a very kind of Dharma concept of uh, almost describes samsara this this kind of feeling of like we're searching for something uh so it's a list of things we know we're searching for but then there's like even just this sort of more uh like a vague sense of wandering searching looking for something that will you know be medicine for this you know world that is on fire something that will quench our thirst, a place where we can rest, the sense of belonging and being unburdened. Uh, this is something I, I am noticing more and more in my practice, the sense of searching. And one of the ways that it manifests in this mind-body pattern is um, I have a lot of complaints. Um, and so I've adopted a very intentional practice, which I call practice, not complaining. And I've enlisted people in my circle, my wife, colleagues, people I work with, uh, to help me in this, uh, you know, breaking this habit pattern. So they get a prompt that basically if they notice that I'm complaining, they just uh, kindly ask me, is that a complaint? And uh, the funny thing is, even though this is my project and I asked for people to point out when I'm complaining, the first reaction to people pointing out the complaining is a kind of complaint, <laughs> like really wanting to be able to complain like aversion and irritation is the response. I feel that feels like there's a compulsion to voice the complaint. Uh, and, you know, 
on surface, it might seem like this is helpful, and maybe it is helpful in some context, you know, talking to a good friend to sort of get something off your chest or um, seeking help from, you know, a guide or an elder or a teacher or a therapist. Uh, but what I notice in my own pattern is that there is a sense of like wanting to vent, but it never vents. It just, it's part of the nature of my mind too, is that I just, uh, it just goes in circles. You know, I start venting and then it's often it's even sort of mild and then it just amps up. And another thing, and another thing, and another thing. Um, so this is a pattern that just has not served me. Um, in making this intention, one of the first realizations was just how much of what I say out loud, leaving aside the internal dialogue for a moment, things I say out loud, some form of complaint, a judgment, a dissatisfaction with something, some disagreement. Uh, lately, it feels like it's more like a lament you know, kind of like just lamenting at the state of things in the world. Often the, the the nugget of what it is, is it's a quarrel with the way things are. It shouldn't be like this. How can it be this way? And, you know, the Buddha had a lot to say about this in terms of uh, you know, quarreling with the fundamental laws of the universe. <laughs> Like I might have a complaint that my body is aging. Uh, not going to win that argument or debate. Um, and the thing that I'm really coming to realize is that these complaints, these dissatisfaction, these laments are a kind of, they create a kind of agitation in the system and they're a barrier to equanimity, to a peaceful sense of abiding in the here and now, all the kinds of things that we seek in this meditation practice. So what exactly do I mean by complaint? What constitutes a complaint? It's an expression of some dissatisfaction, and I say that it's tinged with aversion or ill will. And that's an important distinction, I think. Um, if I get the wrong order at the restaurant and I ask for that to be corrected, it need not be a complaint. It could simply be a request. Uh, it might be a complaint. <laughs> uh, if I mean about it or I experience some internal reactivity, so I'm, so I'm taking out the kind of like natural complaints, things we might call complaints that are actually, you know, skillful or helpful to, to get us what we need, for us to stay safe and protected, um, for us to be able to draw boundaries where they're appropriate. And then I began to investigate, so why is it that I complain? <laughs> Sometimes a complaint is... Um, a request to satisfy some unmet need that has reactivity in it. You see this a lot. Thankfully, I don't do this with my wife, but you see this a lot in intimate relationships where you, you know, you complain to your significant other, you never, you know, you never fill in the blank, whatever it is, the thing that you want from them. 
uh, you never take out the trash or, you know, you never buy me flowers or, um, and of course, these kinds of complaints rarely get the desired effect. You know, they're, they're more likely to lead to an argument than the satisfaction of our wishes. This is another place where the utility of not complaining can be useful. And we can notice if our complaint might be more effective as a request and to make it in a time where the reactivity of the mind is subsided or more containable. Some of you might remember Julia Butterfly Hill. She was a uh, environmental activist and she's famous for having uh, lived at the top of a giant redwood tree for nearly two years. And this was a protest to prevent the tree from being chopped down. Uh, and she had a saying, which I sometimes feel, she said, you know, if you're not angry, then you're asleep. And many of us that care deeply about the planet feel this way. Like there, there's this, come some sense of like, especially when I feel there's, like there's nothing I can do. There's some heartbreak. Then uh, complaining is a kind of habit of the mind that like maybe gives the illusion of some agency or empowerment. Like maybe the only thing I can do is complain, but at least I'm complaining. At least I'm doing something. Again, you know, not particularly helpful because it agitates the system and works against the kind of state of being we're trying to cultivate in this practice. Um, I think we all have this tendency to varying degrees, but some of this is built into human neurology, you know, our our ancestors roamed the jungles. They developed this ability to be vigilant, to scan the horizons for danger, to more quickly process information that's related to threats to survival. Um, and the, the purveyors of media, social and otherwise, know this about human neurology. So that which is stressful, dangerous, frightening, attracts our attention. And so that's what we tend to get exposed to in our environment, just bombarded with so many messages that are kind of ingeniously and insidiously designed to hijack our attention. So we've got to be aware of how this field is affecting us and practice some stewardship of what we're taking in, how we're consuming information. Uh, and the Buddha talked about this really in terms of karma. He said, whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will be the inclination of the mind. Whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon that will become the inclination of the mind. So the mind that practices a lot of complaining, if you're like me, becomes better at seeing all the things there are to complain about. As Miru mentioned, uh, I'm a corporate lawyer. I often teach meditation to lawyers, and this is a big problem in our profession because we're actually trained to see 
all the problems. We're trained to imagine the worst possible outcomes and uh, really have to work. I find I have to work actively to counteract this tendency. So that, you know, like a little bit analogous to the saying of like, you know, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything seems like a nail. So the peril of complaining too much is it unbalances our worldview. Sometimes we're focusing more on what's wrong than what's right. And certainly there's a lot to focus on that's wrong, but also so much to focus on that's right. I like the words of uh, Mark Morford, he's a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. I don't know if that still exists, but uh, it used to be. He says, realize for every ongoing war and religious outrage and environmental devastation and bogus military attack plan, there are a hundred thousand counterbalancing acts of staggering generosity and humanity and art and beauty taking place all over the world right now on a breathtaking scale from flower box to cathedral. In the mind, the heart, at least my mind or heart, they respond to these kinds of thoughts, these kinds of words. The words of the Buddha, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. This is where I'm getting to realize that, you know, when my mind is unpeaceful, the predominant thing that's making it unpeaceful is some form of complaint. And here the Buddha is reminding us that how we use the mind uh, profoundly affects our state of well-being. Of course, the Buddha Dharma has a lot to say about ill will, aversion. Um, you can think of it as a continuum from the mildest irritation, not quite right eye roll to extreme rage or hatred. I'm using anger or will or sometimes complaint to refer to this continuum. And the Buddha's teaching set a very high bar here. Um, Shantideva says, anger is the greatest evil, patient forbearance is the greatest austerity. Whatever wholesome deeds that have been amassed over a thousand eons will be destroyed in one moment of anger. Okay, maybe you know this, like a relationship that um, often this happens with the people we love the most, but you know, there's an argument and you say the thing that just goes too far. You know, and you can't, you know, in the law they say well, you can't unring the bell, like it's been done. And of course, we can make amends and we can 
we can repair, but uh, the sense that this is a very dangerous terrain and our mindfulness serves us well. Other words from the Dhammapada, actually the Buddha expressly admonishing people from complaining. <laughs> he abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. She abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. So it's the carrying on. The suffering is in the carrying on as much as it's in the having the beaten, attacked, defeated, and robbed. Rather than keeping it alive through continual lament, we practicing the complaining mind and actually even feeling how unpleasant that is and learning to let it go for our own benefit. And then the bar gets even higher in the parable of the two-handed saw. One of the more graphic uh, kind of similes that the Buddha uses, but I think it's quite violent and graphic, but also quite useful for illustrative purposes. He says, even if bandits were to carve you up savagely limb by limb with a two-handed saw, he amongst you who let his heart get angered even at that would not be doing my bidding. So even if bandits carve you up savagely, don't complain. <laughs> The Buddha goes on, even then you should train yourselves. Our mind will be unaffected. We will say no evil words. We will remain sympathetic with a mind of goodwill, with no inner hate. Uh, and the high standard comes from not some sort of moralistic argument, but just the understanding that when we have a mind of ill will, we say words with ill will, this is self-afflictive. Now the bandits are long gone. It's the ill will that's the, like a drinking a poison uh, where the Buddha described it as picking up a hot coal to throw at someone else and in the process we get burned. He goes on to say, we will keep pervading these people with an awareness imbued with goodwill and beginning with them. We will keep pervading the all-encompassing world with an awareness imbued with goodwill. Also translated as metta. Abundant, expansive, immeasurable, free from hostility, free from ill will. This is how you should train yourself. The method for cultivating metta. Friendliness, benevolence, goodwill. Which might result in, you know, beneficial, positive, altruistic acts for others, but more than that, the teaching of metta is about the inner state. Can we have an inner state of friendliness, benevolence, and goodwill? So you read these teachings and maybe you get the sense that anger is bad. We shouldn't get angry. This is actually a problem in some spiritual communities that you know anger gets suppressed, which just leads to festering which makes us more uneasy, can even make us sick. And, uh, you know, sometimes folks who are angry at legitimate things that need to be voiced get kind of shamed or silenced because, you know, they're seen as, uh, you know, 
not practicing goodwill. <laughs> but it's not anger that's the problem. The problem happens when we lack restraint and we act, act out in ways that are harmful to others. The phenomenon of anger is kind of a natural, I mean, it is, it is referred to as one of the, the three poisons and maybe there's some expression of a fruition of this path of complete awakening where all those streams of energy are uprooted. Uh, but for most of us, you know, anger is a part of life and um, how can we learn to be with that experience um, in a way that the energy can be metabolized, the energy can be released in ways that are not harmful to others or ourselves. And more and more cultivate a default state where, you know, rather than anger being the first response, maybe compassion is the first response or some feeling of care or concern. One thing that's really helpful in working with anger is um, to pay attention to the Vedana or feeling tone. I notice if, with complaining, you know, like it, it, there is a pleasantness to it. And anger often has this way that's kind of seductive. Again, you might feel empowered. Sometimes it brings energy. It may bring a sense of agency. Um, the Buddha referred to anger as a arrow with a honey tip and a poison root. So there's something like kind of seductive and initially, but then after some amount of time, we can experience it. You know, the Buddha often describes it as sickness. It has that quality of like, ugh. So to pay attention to that Vedana, like just notice where ill will or anger has a kind of pleasant feeling. And then also to notice when it shifts, when it feels uh, painful or afflictive, or we might have remorse or uh, you know, kind of helpful uh, Buddhist shame, we say is, you know, like Hiryanotapa, like the kind of inner conscience that keeps us on the path. Anger is also kind of tricky because it, it often comes on very quickly, like out of nowhere. And if you have this tendency also, like it can be kind of like easily hijacked us. It easily it can easily hijack us and then we become entrenched. Well, I'll speak for myself and I become entrenched in the narrative about how I've been wronged or how my anger is somehow justified. And then this fixed narrative, again, starts distorting everything. So I'm just, you know, selection bias turns on and suddenly everything in my experience is reifying this complaint, this anger in a kind of vicious cycle. Another way anger or ill will is tricky Stand by. Okay, now I think you can hear me, right? Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> the choice of Zoom. 
<laughs> it doesn't happen when we're, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy we're on Zoom because I wouldn't be able to be with you, but uh, it would be funny if people glitched out like that in person. <laughs> uh, another reason that anger is really tricky is that often it's, um, it's layered and can be kind of experienced as an amorphous glob of feelings. Um, it's often layered with, I mean, for me, anger is almost always connected in some way to heartbreak, to grief. Uh, and so like all these different energies, you know, to kind of like, uh, and meditation is a great frame to kind of deconstruct, to see like what's really, what's really at the root of things and kind of give medicine at the root you know, to actually cure the ailment rather than just treating the symptoms. And I think the Buddha proposes a kind of like radical accountability, you know, to say that even if bandits were to, you know, attack you and maul you, that um, holding that standard of responsibility for our own reactivity. And that any reactivity that arises for us is kind of in a, in a way ours to manage the seeds for that anger and this heart, this body, this mind. Which is not to say that the external is not important, but uh, moving away more and more from blaming others or blaming conditions to taking a kind of personal responsibility for how we feel. It's kind of an empowerment, putting us in the driver's seat, inviting agency through mindfulness and practice rather than leaving us kind of fate to the winds of circumstance. of a commitment to own our anger, but also not blame ourselves. I thought, I think I would just end with like a way of, uh, an acronym I wanna share with you as a way of deconstructing experience that's kind of embedded into our meditation practice. And the acronym is RAFT. I got this from Gil Fronsdale and I found it to be very useful. So the similar to the acronym RAIN, which some of you might know uh, from Michelle McDonald, popularized by Tara Brock. Uh, so RAFT stands for, the R stands for recognize. Yeah, big part of our mindfulness practice is developing this ability to recognize what's happening in this moment. Oh, will is present in this moment or bodies in reactivity in this moment. Uh, that recognition is, um, kind of a linchpin for um, any kind of transformation or understanding because when we don't recognize, we're just in a habit stream. Things are just happening. The A in uh, raft is allow. Similar to rain, the sense that in this moment, uh, things are as they are to the allow is a kind of releasing of the complaint. So I'm gonna just allow things to be as they are for this moment. Uh, F is feel. And I like feel, you know, because it's just 
can mean that in this the whole sense of the word of like feel what's happening feel the emotions that are present feel the body feel the a sense impression we get of the mind the kind of simplicity to that just just be there and just be present for this experience and then the t is a refinement of feel it's teasing apart so in any experience we might notice different strands of that experience so often there's thinking that's happening so my example of complaints i'm complaining reactivity there's a view a paradigm, a belief, a set of facts, and a narrative. And with my complaints, you know, they're generally kind of spot on. Like, I'm not going to win the argument at that level. <laughs> yeah, things shouldn't be this way. You know, they, they really shouldn't. So good to notice the thoughts, but then uh, drop beneath the thoughts, what's happening in the emotional sphere, constellations of physical sensations that we recognize, anger, sadness, grief, remorse, uh, whatever it might be to make contact in a more intimate way with that experience. And then the most granular um, deconstruction of experience is what's happening at the level of sensation. So vibration, tingling, throbbing, tension, heat, coolness, all these sort of basic constituents of, and most of the things I've been giving are tactile. Tactile things tend to be most helpful. Um, and almost always in a moment of reactivity or a moment of difficulty or a moment of suffering of some kind, the managing it at the level of sensation tends to be the most, we tend to have the most agency or the easiest to bear, easiest to digest, easiest to be with experience at that level. So maybe I'll end with a quote uh, from Shantideva. Where would I possibly find enough leather with which to cover the earth? But wearing leather just on the soles of my shoes is equivalent to covering the earth with it. I cannot restrain the external course of things, but should I restrain this mind of mine, then what would be the need to restrain anything else? Unruly beings are as unlimited as space. They cannot possibly be all overcome, but if I overcome of thoughts of anger alone, this will be equivalent to vanquishing all foes. Well, thank you for listening. Let's just let those words settle for a couple minutes. I did want to say one more thing. <laughs> uh, I wanted to close the loop on the woman in Iceland.
you know, this thing that we're searching for, uh, it's possible that like the woman in Iceland, that it's not lost, but it's rather here in every moment waiting for us to notice. So Tibetan Rinpoche says, imagine a sky empty, spacious and pure from the beginning. Essence of mind is like this. Imagine a sun, luminous, clear, unobstructed and spontaneously present. Nature of mind is like this. Imagine a sun shining out impartially on us on all things, penetrating all directions. The energy of mind, which is the manifestation of compassion is like this. Nothing can obstruct it and it pervades everywhere. So the, the awareness that knows experience is already free, unobstructed, non-discriminating and has no complaints. Well, um, thank you everybody. This was wonderful, it's delightful. So happy to be with you through the magic of the internet and uh, everybody be well. I'm sure our paths will cross in one form or another. Um, have a good rest of your evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.